Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. For me to come back to Franciscan University is always an amazing treat because this is, is where in uh, many respects my journey began as I came back into the Catholic Church and it was 20 years ago in August of this year uh, 20 years ago that I sat on the edge of the third to last pew right over there and I walked in to this place and I knew nobody and nobody knew me and I was having a meeting with some guy called Scott Hain <laughs> and uh, I went in and sat over there and, uh, and it, and it kind of began for me and it's been 20 years since I've been back and before that I was a Protestant pastor for 12 years and out of the church for 15 years uh, so I want to start off I'm going to pray in a moment but I want to start off and just encourage you I know that uh, some of you are in Dr. Hahn's class right now aren't you? How many of you are here for extra credit for that? Oh, good. Oh, that's why I'm speaking on suffering. I'm here, I'm here to help you get along a little bit. Actually, my, my latest book is When You Suffer. It comes out in two days. In two days, so it's not officially out. <laughs> I snuck one out. But I want to encourage you before we get going here this evening that, uh, you know, if you're sitting here at the university and you're studying theology, you're studying philosophy, whatever it might be, uh, the, the world out there is waiting for visionaries and it's waiting for people who have ideas that God has given them and to go out and to do amazing things. And Franciscan University is an amazing place. Uh, I was being interviewed by our Sunday visitor about three months ago for my book, the book that's coming out. And I said to them while I was being interviewed, I said, you need to do a story on Franciscan University. And she said, well, what aspect? And I said, in the middle 90s, there was something that happened that was extraordinary. And there was a group of about 30 people that came together over about a four-year period, fellowshiped with one another, met in homes with one another, went to the coffee shop with one another, and just talked about scripture and theology and changing the world. And she said, well, who are they? And I started naming off all of these names of, uh, of course, uh, Scott Hahn and Curtis Martin and Tim Gray and Ted Sree and Curtis Mitch and uh, Sister John Dominic, and uh, the, the list went on and on and on. And I've never known that, that era to repeat. It's such an amazing era where everybody came together. But we were talking about the, the special soup that was involved in that era. And I think that the special soup was that people fellowshiped together. They got together and started sharing ideas and things that, that maybe God would, would ask us to do. And out of that tight fellowship came a bond and a trust that when people went out from the school, they stayed in touch with each other and they continued to share ideas with each other about scripture and studies and so forth. So if you look at what happened out of that era, it truly is remarkable, but there's no reason why that wouldn't happen right now at Franciscan University, where there is a fraternity, there's a sorority, there's a, there's a family coming together that in light of everything we're facing in our culture today, there's no reason why people from Franciscan University can't come out and come together and say, we're gonna change the world. We are going to change the world. And I think that's one of the things that was so different about this group in the 90s was that everyone, when they left, said, we're going to change the world. We're going to change the world for Jesus Christ. So you're part of a, a great school. Uh, my daughter graduated here with nursing in 2000-something. <laughs> And uh, she went on to, she's become an anesthetist now, so we both put people to sleep. She just wanted to keep it in the family. You found that pretty funny, didn't you? All right. 
Well, let's open up with prayer. I want to talk about something tonight uh, about redemptive suffering, but I, I, I'm going to use scripture, obviously, in this, but I, I want this to be a really practical talk for you. Uh, I know that you're studying a lot. We're, we're right in the middle of midterms or getting close to midterms right now. Didn't want to bring that up. Sorry. But, um, but I, I, want to, I want to be a blessing to you tonight. And I want to share something that will help you in your life because I'm sure that there are people in this room right now that might be going through some things. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's something with back home or your own studies or emotions, whatever it might be. And I want to help you to, to know how to offer that up so that it becomes something valuable and it has meaning in your life. So let's pray together in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you tonight for this opportunity to come together here at Franciscan University to talk about your word and to talk about the topic of suffering. And I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who have gathered here tonight, that you would speak to their heart in a very, a very intimate way and speak tenderly to their heart and draw them to yourself and allow them to experience your love and your mercy and your compassion. I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name, amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I might, ooh, it gets louder when you do that, right? It's too loud. I want to, um, I want to talk to you about the practical, some practical aspects of, of suffering and what the scripture says about suffering. And uh, with the hopes that you can leave here this evening in the midst of all of your studies with making a little bit more sense out of this issue of redemptive suffering. When I was a kid growing up in Minnesota, uh, my mother would occasionally say to me, she would be in the kitchen and she'd say, go offer it up, which basically meant get out of the kitchen, I'm cooking. You know, that I might have been asking for something to eat or whatever. She'd go, go offer it up. And I never really knew what going, offering it up, you know, meant. How many of you have heard that phrase before, go offer it up? That is, a, it is an unusual phrase. And while we use it as Catholics, it's amazing how many of us as Catholics don't really know what that means. Or we don't know how to do it in our, in our life. I want to start this talk by kind of collecting everybody. Because when we talk about suffering, oftentimes when you read a book about suffering or you hear a lecture about suffering, you hear about the big ticket items. Cancer, loss of a loved one, quadriplegic, major accident, those types of things. But I want to collect everybody here by talking about something that we all go through. One of the things that we all have in the back of our head is we have this idea of what an ideal life looks like. And we have an ideal day and what an ideal day looks like. Our ideal life, our ideal day is predictable. It's in our wheelhouse. We are affirmed by other people. Our needs are met. It's easy. And people know that this is what I'm about. And that's a pretty predictable life. It's a pred predictable day. But then there is the less than ideal life. The problem with your ideal life and my ideal life is that we've got to wake up in the morning. <laughs> and we face real life when we wake up. And real life oftentimes is very unpredictable. Suddenly something comes into your schedule that you were not counting on and you're like, what am I supposed to do now? It's unpredictable. It's not your wheelhouse. It, your needs are not being met. You might have to miss a lunch or something like that. You're not particularly affirmed, and, and people uh, don't recognize this as being your particular giftedness, and it's not, it's not you. And when your ideal life or your ideal day collides with real life, as it does so many days, then oftentimes we respond in a very negative way. We either run, we blame people, we self-medicate, we justify, we do all kinds of things when our ideal day doesn't come about. I'll give you an example of my ideal day. My, my ideal day, since I travel and I speak and I'm doing that type of thing, my ideal day is a Saturday when I don't travel. 
And I've got so many frequent flyer miles that people say, wow, you got all those miles, you could go anywhere. Yeah, like home, <laughs> to mow the lawn, <laughs> and clean the garage, things like that. And my ideal day is a Saturday morning, and I wake up and the kids are asleep, and my wife's asleep, and I go downstairs and I get on my Harley Davidson. And I ride my Harley up to the coffee shop, and I ride my Harley up to the coffee shop, and I got my iPad with me, and I get a cup of coffee, and I read a little bit about the news, read my Bible on my iPad, and it's a nice crisp morning, and come back, and family gets up, and we make bacon and eggs, and have a nice Saturday, you know, breakfast, and, and then uh, I clean the garage, and in the afternoon, take a little ride with a couple of my friends on the Harley, they got Harleys too, and then I come back, and we, um, we go walk around Lake Harriet in Minnesota, and then after that, I go home and we barbecue and my wife and I, maybe we'll even go out for a movie. Ideal. What a Saturday. But I wake up on Saturday and I get ready to put my leather jacket on and I notice my wife coming out of the bedroom. And I said, what are you doing? <laughs> like, she needs permission, you know. <laughs> so, what are you doing? And she says, didn't you remember? <laughs> Remember what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I thought I put it in the calendar. No. Whatever it is, it's not in the calendar. What are we doing? Well, we're going to my cousin's best friend's butcher's neighbor's uncle's best friend's <laughs> wedding up in St. Cloud, which is an hour and a half away. Really? Yeah, I'm so sorry. I thought you knew. No, I didn't know. And that's when real life hits my ideal life and all of a sudden I can lose it, you know, or I can do whatever. And I'll say, you know what? I was looking forward to a really ideal Saturday. And you just wrecked it. <laughs> she said, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I thought it was in the calendar. No, it's not in the calendar. From now on, make sure it's in the calendar. And I can be all stinky and everything else, you know. And my kid's watching saying, he teaches Bible, you know, to the, to the neighbors. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm less than Christ, for sure. And that's what happens so often, is when, when, when ideal life collides with real life. And so I want to pick this talk up on suffering from the perspective of less than an ideal day. What do you do with less than an ideal day. Now, a lot of people, when you talk to them, they'll say, if you really get to talk to them, they'll, they'll, they'll examine their life and they will find out that only about 30% of their life is what they really think they're supposed to be doing. This is ideal. About 30% of my time, I'm in my wheelhouse, you know? But the rest of the time, what are they doing? They're putting up with life. They're just sort of putting up with it, getting through it. And there's a lot of people like that out there. But I want to I propose to you this evening that Jesus came to die for all of your life. And that all of your life has meaning. And all of your life has purpose. And every aspect of your life and every day of your life is an opportunity to love. It's an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to become more like Jesus. But if you've reduced that opportunity to only about 30% or so, you're going to be missing out on a whole lot of life. So what do you do with the less than ideal days? And what do you do when you find out that, yes, you might have a disease or you got into an accident or whatever it might be? True story, absolute true story. I went uh, about five or six weeks ago. I'm in a confession line. I'm in a conf I go to confession occasionally. So I'm, I'm, waiting, I'm waiting to get into the confession line. When the priest comes in, everyone suddenly goes whoosh, right over to the wall real quick. And you don't want to be like 14th or 15th. You want to be second, third, right around in there. That's in the running. First, a little obvious, but maybe second, third, fourth. So the priest comes in, whoo, I'm over there, third. Yes! This is a good day. Ideal. Fourteenth would have been less than ideal on that day. And I'm standing in line, and suddenly this little nun comes walking toward me, and she has to go all the way back to the end of the line, and she's bent over, and I thought, oh, I feel bad for her. I said, sister, come on in here. You can, you can go in in front of me. Go ahead. People behind me are going, you know, I've been standing here for a while. And I'm like, 
Now you got one more thing to confess back there. <laughs> and, and I let her go in front of me. I let her go in front of me. And she goes into confession. He's in there like for 15 minutes. I'm thinking, what have you done? <laughs> I mean, and she comes out. She comes out and she leaves. I go to confession. I leave. It's a rainy day. Three blocks from this little church in downtown St. Paul, I stopped at the stoplight waiting for the light to turn green. And all of a sudden, bam, from behind I got nailed. My nice white Subaru, nailed. I called 911, I knew it was serious. I got, I got out of the car and I turned around. It was that nun. <laughs> I will never let her go first again, ever. <laughs> And it was another nun with her, and they nailed me, and it, it, it all worked out, and the car got repaired. But it was one of those things where you think, life is good, went to confession, I'm feeling good, and then three blocks later, bam, and you just right out of nowhere. And that's what happens in life, in life sometimes. <laughs> I'm going to go to confession somewhere else from now on, but... But what do you do when life suddenly you know, makes a turn on you right there? What do you, what do, you do when it's less than ideal? I want to talk about some of the aspects of suffering, the theological aspects of suffering, and, and still make this very, very practical. So that, and I want to end by showing you what to do in the midst of your suffering. When we talk about suffering, one of the great saints of suffering was St. John Paul II. And he wrote uh, a small little writing called Salvifici Dolores. And Salvifici Dolores is one of those great books, well, great writings that really explains to us kind of the inner workings of suffering and the meaning of suffering and how we go about appropriating the grace of God in the midst of our, of our suffering. And I want to really, I want to recommend that to you because it's such a powerful, such a powerful reading. And it became really the heart of the book that I was writing on suffering called When You Suffer. In there, he talks about two kinds of suffering. One kind of suffering is a physical suffering. And all of us have gone through a physical suffering at one time or another. A broken bone, nuns hitting you in the car, things like that. Physical suffering. And there's also outside of, on the other side of physical suffering, there is moral suffering. And moral suffering is the suffering of the heart. It's the suffering of the heart. It's that loss of a loved one. It can be the breakup of a boyfriend and girlfriend, the pain in that heart. It can be the betrayal of a friend, but there's that suffering in the heart, loneliness, whatever it might be. So you've got physical suffering and you've got moral suffering. Those are two kinds of suffering, and there's also two types of suffering. There's temporal suffering, temporal suffering, that suffering while we're living on this earth. But then St. John Paul II says that there is a whole other order of suffering called definitive suffering. And definitive suffering is when you spend eternity forever and ever and ever without God, in darkness lost forever and forever is a long time especially as you get towards the end <laughs> and so there's temporal suffering and there is this definitive suffering and Jesus came to earth and he entered into physical suffering and the suffering of the heart to take care of our definitive suffering. And so he loved us by suffering for us. And that is part of love, is that love is willing to be poured out and to give, self-donating. And that the Trinity, which is made up of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a dynamo of love. And we're created in the image and likeness of God, and we are created to be brought up into that life of the Trinity and share in his blessed life as adopted sons and daughters. Very important. And so he loved us, and in order to redeem us, he employed suffering. He suffered for us. He loved us so much. Now, I'm not going to go all, all into that tonight, 
because you've got classes on that and you've got books on that and everything that happened in the cross and the garden of Gethsemane and the cross and the resurrection. But we all, suffice it to say, receive and believe that, yes, he suffered for us. He suffered for us that we would be with him forever and that definitive suffering would be dealt with. So we believe that. But the problem comes in for us as modern day Christians is why then do we suffer? Why do we suffer? If he suffered for me, why do I have to suffer today? And now, you, Jeff, you're telling me that if I suffer, there is meaning in my suffering. This gets into the whole notion of happiness and what happiness is. And we think that if God wants us to be happy, what is the modern definition of happiness or the modern notion of happiness? Happiness is when you don't suffer. Happiness is the absence of suffering. So if God truly wants me to be happy, he will die for my sins and he will give me everything I need and want and I will be happy forever. But the problem with that is, is that this definition of happiness based on not suffering is a very modern notion. It's a very modern notion. The ancient philosophers and thinkers like Aristotle and others would tell us that happiness comes not from the absence of pain and suffering, but from living a good life. Living a good life. So with the modern notion of happiness, you're caught. It's going to be difficult for you to live a happy life if a happy life simply means the absence of discomfort and suffering in less than ideal days. In fact, you may only live 20% of your life in a happy state. The rest is just putting up with life. But what if you could live a life where you are happy 24-7 and filled with joy even if you were in the midst of suffering? So according to the biblical idea of happiness, and philosophy, you can be happy even if you are suffering. Even if you are in discomfort, you can still be happy if you know what to do with your discomfort and you have meaning attached to your suffering. So we could say this, we could say that if you cannot attach meaning to your suffering, you can go into despair. But if you can attach meaning to your suffering, you can go through anything, anything. And all I have to do is find that meaning attached to my suffering. Am I gonna enjoy suffering? Not particularly, but will it have meaning? Yes. Can I remain happy? Absolutely. Will 100% of my life have meaning? Yes, it will. And that's one of the things Jesus has come to teach us is what real love is. It's what real love is. Now, I want to give you a scripture here in Colossians chapter 1, which when I was a Protestant pastor, to be honest with you, it, it, really, it really played games with my mind. Because Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 says, says, I rejoice in my, this is Paul, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and I fill up in my body that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now that threw me. First of all, he's rejoicing in his suffering. Hello. There's medication for that. <laughs> he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and I'm filling up in my body that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? This is a very serious question. What could possibly be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? What possibly could be lacking? Did Jesus, was he on, when he was on the cross and after the resurrection from the dead, suddenly there was a private meeting with the Father and he says, uh-oh. <laughs> I'm afraid we only got 98% of it. I don't know what to tell the church now, but I've, there's only 98% of it that I paid for. I don't know how it slipped. I don't know how we forgot that last 2%, but we're going to have to ask them now to sort of fill it up. Anybody hear that gospel before? 
How many of you believe that Jesus died for us totally, 100%, redeemed us 100%, and left nothing on the table? I do. I believe 100%. So what is Paul talking about when he says that I fill up in my body that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? What does he mean? Well, St. Augustine asked the same question. St. John Paul II asked the same question. What could be lacking? And St. Augustine said, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ is the lacking, is the, is, is the suffering of the mystical body of Christ. What is lacking is some participation in the mystical body of Christ, which is the church. Now, St. John Paul II gave an answer that was, that was similar to that, but a little bit more nuanced and full. And he said, what is lacking in the, in the sufferings of Christ? Nothing. But that you might come to know the love of God. He has made room in his suffering for you to participate. Listen to what he said in Salvifici Dolores. I'll read it to you. He says in paragraph 27, the springs of divine power gush forth precisely in the midst of human weakness. Now, isn't that powerful? Here's a pope saying that the springs of divine power gush forth precisely in the midst of human weakness. Those who share in the sufferings of Christ preserved in their own, preserve in their own sufferings a very special particle of the infinite treasure of the world's redemption, and get this, and can share it with others. So what John Paul II said was that we in the body of Christ here, when we participate in the sufferings of Christ, we preserve in our own suffering what he says is a special particle, a special particle of the infinite treasure of the world's redemption. In other words, of the suffering of Christ, he has made room for you to participate and gives you a particle. He gives you an opportunity to pick up your cross and follow him. He gives you an opportunity to live the way he lives. He gives you an opportunity to love the way he loves. And this will make more sense a little bit later on in hour four. But <laughs> no, I'm kidding, totally kidding. I saw your faces there. But there are two ways of looking at this. There's two ways of looking at, at, the, at the, the work of Christ. And honestly, I think a lot of this comes down to our identity as the body of Christ our relationship to the Messiah as the church and our cooperation with the Messiah in his mission. And there are two ways of looking at it. One is very popular on television today. And that is a very popular notion of this. Jesus did it all. He did it all. He died for my sins. He suffered for me. He's the judge. He's the counselor. He's the intercessor. He's my physician. He's everything. And me, I am the church, I am the recipient of all the benefits of his work. Feed me. Ah. <laughs> I can confess whatever I want. Homes, cars, healing, perfect health. I am the recipient of all of this. There's a Hebrew word for that. Ba-lo-ni. <laughs> Baloney. The rest of you got it right there. See, you're not Hebrew scholars, you wouldn't know. But you'll hear that, particularly in America, but the problem with it is, it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible at all. Listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 13. 1 Peter chapter 2 in verses 20 through 23, For to this you have been called, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps, he committed no sin, no guile was found on his lips. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 4.19 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to the faithful creator. We can go on. The Apostle Paul, what did he say? He said, I have been struggling with a thorn in the flesh. And I have asked the Lord three times to remove this thorn from me. And what did he say? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 9, he said, God answered, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. Grace is the life of the Trinity. Paul says, get rid of this discomfort. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Power is perfected in weakness. So this view of I, God does everything and I receive everything isn't a scriptural thing at all. At all. And it's very American. The other side of that coin is what the Catholic Church teaches, and what Paul taught, and what Peter taught in Jesus. And that is this, that yes, Christ is the Messiah. Christ suffered for the sins of the world. He died for the sins of the world. He is the great physician and healer. He is the intercessor and the judge, and he is the one that shows us the Father. But get this, the relationship between Christ and the church is so intimate that it doesn't stop at the point of his mission. It doesn't stop. He doesn't do everything and say, man, did I give you guys a good life. Enjoy. Enjoy. The battle is over. He doesn't do that. The intimacy between the head and the body is so real that the body continues the mission of the Messiah in the world even after he left and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so he commanded us, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Well, you're the one with the gospel and the good news, the great euangelion, learn that word. Why don't you do it? He's saying, you're my body, you go and you do my work. The work is not finished. The work is not finished. So go into the world. And we find out that the Messiah, Jesus, has given the intercessory role to us as a church. We hear in Scripture that there's only one intercessor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Yet he says, you be intercessors and pray for one another in my name. Pray in my name. He's the healer. But he says, lay hands on the sick. There's the only one Father, and he discloses the Father. Yet he gives us fathers. And father figures here on earth. And he suffered for the sins of the world, and he shares that too with us. And this is where it makes sense in our lives. Did he die for the sins of the world? Yes, he did. Yet he says to his followers, pick up your cross and follow me. So he's not telling us now the work is over, go out with all the benefits and tell everyone, life's a bowl of cherries. <laughs> That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I have defeated the enemy. I have completed, it is finished, it's mop-up time. Now we go out and we do the work that he does in the world today. And that means that our suffering has meaning now. Our crosses have meaning if they are joined to Him. If they are in union with Him, they become redemptive, powerful. Our suffering, the particle that we have, that He even says you can apply this to individuals, has tremendous redemptive power and we learn to love as Christ loves. I like what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 28. He said, For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And I would ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that all things work together? For the good, to those who, are, who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that Jesus redeemed all of your life? We say, yes, Lord, you redeemed me, and that means my spirit is new. I've become born again. I'm on my way to heaven. 
And I know that you even care about my body, because my body's going to be raised on, on, that, on that day, and I will, I will be with you. But what about my suffering, Lord? What about that? Did you change that too? Yes, I did. All things are new. All things are new. And nothing is wasted at all. So now we have the opportunity as the body of Christ to join our suffering, the broken leg, the broken heart, whatever it might be. We have the opportunity to offer that up in union with Jesus. And now our suffering is redemptive. I like to call it this, heavenly cash. <laughs> heavenly cash. And one lady wrote about 100 years ago, I mentioned it in the book, she had a phenomenal quote, and if you quote it three times, it becomes your quote. <laughs> but she said, she said, in your suffering, you have an amazing coin. In your suffering, you have an amazing coin that can buy what cannot be purchased. You have an amazing coin that can buy that which cannot be purchased. I cannot purchase the salvation of souls, but I got a coin that can contribute to that with my daughters, with your brothers and sisters, with your relatives. And that coin I have is my crosses and my suffering. It's my crosses and my suffering. It's incredible. It's powerful. Listen to what John Paul II said. He said, this is an extremely important aspect of suffering. It is profoundly rooted in the entire revelation of the old and above all the new covenant. Suffering must serve for conversion. It must serve for conversion and change for the rebuilding of goodness in the subject. And then he said, in the cross of Christ, not only is the redemption accomplished through suffering, not only is the redemption of your soul accomplished through suffering, but listen to this, but also human suffering itself has been redeemed. It's been made new. In Christ now, the fear of death, the sting of it is gone. Fulton Sheen once said that the greatest fear that we have is not the fear of sickness or the fear of losing a limb or going blind, but the greatest fear that we have is the fear of death, the loss of total control. It's over, finished, kaput. Kaput is Greek for end. <laughs> Tell her that's not true. She's writing that down right now. Tell her that is not true. That isn't true. I don't want that showing up in Dr. Hahn's class. <laughs> but he said that the biggest fear we have is a fear of death. And he says, how do we combat that? How do you combat the fear of death? He said, are you afraid of an accident and losing the, the, the use of your legs? Hmm. Are you afraid of being disfigured? Are you afraid of getting uh, cancer? Are you, what are you afraid of? Well, there's a lot of things there. What about death? Ah! I don't want to die. He said, the way that we combat this fear of death, and he said, and the reason that we in America are so fearful of death is that we don't practice for it. And the best way to combat your fear of death, and if I, if I were interviewing you on radio right now, I know enough about myself at the age of 25. My dad had bypass surgery, four bypasses at the age of 48. I'm 57. At 25 years old, I was paralyzed with fear that I would drop dead at a young age. And what Archbishop Fulton Sheen is saying is, you're not practicing. Practicing what? Dying. How do I do that? Pick up your cross daily and follow me. Mortify the flesh. Discipline the flesh. Give up your own will. Serve other people. Die to yourself. The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. You see, this is living the Christian life. This is living the life after Jesus. I die daily. Pope John Paul II said, it is suffering 
more than anything else which, get this, clears the way for the grace which transforms human souls. He says it's suffering, now notice what he said there, it's suffering more than anything else, more than anything else, that clears the way for God's grace, his life, to come in and transform your soul. This is why the saints who knew Jesus so well embraced the cross and embraced the suffering. The cross is foolishness to the world. For us, it's life. Think about it for a moment. We just, we just experienced the triumph of the cross, the feast day, didn't we? The feast of the triumph of the cross. But think about it for a moment. Think about this for a moment. They took a Savior, our Savior. They beat Him. They stripped Him naked. They nailed Him to a cross, helpless, and He died. And we call that triumph. We're not like the world. We're different. And when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, it's your opportunity for triumph. It's your opportunity for triumph. Another thing that Pope said, St. Pope John Paul II, he said, for suffering cannot be transformed and changed by the grace from outside. Suffering cannot be transformed and changed by the grace from outside, but from within. And Christ, through his own self, that the suffering is very much, said is very much present in every human suffering. His suffering is present in every human suffering and can act from within that suffering by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it transforms our life. It absolutely transforms our life. When I was going through a terrible suffering in my life, uh, someone asked me in an interview the other day, why did you write a book about suffering? And I said, because I'm really into it. <laughs> and they kind of laughed and I said, no, I'm serious. I'm really into it. I don't enjoy it necessarily, but I'm into it. It's gonna be a good t-shirt, huh? Suffering, I'm into it. I don't know if that go big in public, but, but you know what I'm talking about, is that in 2001, I had something with my neck that stopped me cold for about nine months. And I was sitting at the kitchen table and I reached over with my left arm to grab the salt shaker and something, electricity just shot up my left arm. And I thought, wow. That must have been a pulled muscle or something. And uh, ooh, that's wild. And the next night, forgot about it, reached over again, oof, electric, right up the arm. And I thought, what is that? And it got to the point where I could do it on, you know, cue, just ooh, ooh, and so I stopped. <laughs> and I realized I got a problem. And my wife said, get your heart checked and all of that. And I went in, my heart was fine. And what it was, was a bulging disc in C, C6, 7, right here. And, uh, and it was very, very painful. It got worse and worse and worse, and they did shots, they did therapy, they stretched my neck, rack, everything. And it got worse. And Dr. Hahn and I talked several times a week during that period. And I gotta tell you, he's a really good friend. When I first came into the church, we did a holy hour together every morning, right over there where you are in the red, every morning. And we prayed together. And when I was suffering, he acted as a friend and started talking to me about redemptive suffering. And it doesn't always make sense, but we would talk and talk. And it got to the point where it was so bad in my neck that I ended up, I was on my way to EWTN on a flight, going to the airport to do Life on the Rock. And my wife drove me to the airport and I said, I, I, don't, I don't feel very good. And the next thing I knew, there were paramedics on top of me in the car trying to revive me. And I went into surgery after that, where they took the disc out of my neck, took a bone out of my hip, fashioned it after this, stuck it in, put a titanium plate over it, and put two screws into it. Totally wrecked my day. <laughs> yeah. 
it was less than ideal that day. But it was two weeks before that happened. I went, I, I got to be honest with you. Guys, you know this. Guys, we do not suffer well. I think women are better at suffering. You know what I'm saying? I really do. I think they're better. Men, you know, get, oh, my back hurts, my back hurts. Honey, give me the beer. Kids, where's the remote? I'll be out, I'll be out for about a week, I guess, you know. And women, they're suffering, and they just keep doing what they do. You know, it's, it's amazing. Well, I, I'm not, I wasn't a good sufferer, and I, I couldn't sleep. And when you can't sleep in the midst of suffering, physical suffering, or moral suffering of the heart, you can, you can go into despair. It wears you out. And you don't even see things correctly anymore. And everyone else says, well, cheer up. It'll get better. They don't know the darkness you're feeling and looking like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And particularly people who struggle with depression, anxiety. It's very serious. And I went downstairs that night, and I went down to the couch, and I knelt down. i got to be honest with you. I just started sobbing. I just started crying. I said, I can't deal with this anymore. I cannot deal with this anymore. And I'm in the midst of ministry. I'm doing Life on the Rocks, substituting for Mother Angelica, writing books, doing Bible studies, all of that. And I'm thinking, I should know. I have a CD on this. <laughs> well, having a CD doesn't guarantee that you know exactly what to do when, the, when it really happens. In fact, that's something that St. John Paul II said. He said, you cannot teach suffering in the objective. In other words, there's no class on it where you're going to get an A in the class and think, I got this thing down. He says, it's a vocation. Come, follow me. And you'll learn how to love. You'll learn how to die to yourself. You'll learn how to work with me in saving the world and loving the world. Well, I went downstairs and I started crying. And I said, God, what do I do? What do I do? How do I offer it up? I know this, but how do I do it? How do I offer it up? I'm waiting for some magical answer. You know, the silver bullet. And suddenly a thought came to me, which I knew was the Lord. And the Lord just gave me a phrase, which later a shoe company took and made millions. <laughs> just do it. Just do it. So often we look for this magical, mystical, whoa, I wouldn't believe it. I wanted to offer up my suffering. Well, what did you do? I was out of my body. What, what, what happened? I floated around the living room. And then what? The angels and saints came to me and comforted me. Mm-hmm. No, just do it. And you know what I did? I went upstairs to my girl's room. My one daughter was here at school. She was here at school. No, she wasn't. She, she was still in high school. I'll take that back. She was in high school. The two little ones were in their, in their bunk beds. They don't ever wake up for anything. I walked up to the room like this. I walked up and I held my arm with tears just run down my face. I knelt down next to Jackie, who was about four or five years old. And I knelt down to her and I just raised my good arm and I just said, as I cried, I said, for her. I said, I offer up my particle for her, for her salvation, for her life. I offer it up for her. And I put my head down next to her on the pillow, and I just wept. I just said, for her, for her. And after about three or four minutes, something rose up inside of me when I suddenly realized that I was loving my daughter the way Christ loves me, for Jeff, for Jeff, for Jeff. And I can't tell you the joy that rose up in my heart. And I knew for the first time what, I'm no saint, I'm not even close, but I understood what they were talking about when they said, Lord, you love me so much that you allowed me to suffer. I personally thought that was theologically weird. But now I got it. I'm in now. I'm on the inside of this mystery now. I get it. I get it. I didn't want it to end. 
because I was joining my suffering with the suffering of Christ. My suffering was transformed, and intellectually I knew it, but I entrusted myself. Faith, the Catechism teaches that there are two components to your faith. One is an intellectual assent, that I know that if I offer this up in union with him, I know that it has redemptive power. All of us know that and agree. But then the second aspect of it is, the second aspect of faith is personally entrusting yourself to someone else who is God. And so at that point of suffering, we say, I know that if I offer this up by an act of my will, and I entrust myself, which Peter says more than three times in his epistle, in, during, in talking about trusting, I know that this is the secret. This is the cross that I'm called to pick up. And that is what happened to me back then. And then I went into surgery about two weeks, about two weeks later. And once you're there, there's like a fear that is gone. And I was in surgery, and I was waiting there in the waiting room on my back, couldn't even lift my head or anything. And once you know about redemptive suffering, the flip side of that is that we, in compassion, relieve suffering. We do both. And so I, as a Christian today, am like a commando. If I suffer, I know what to do with it. But I'm also open to be healed by the grace of God and the power of God. And I also will go out and help people with their suffering, but pray for their suffering also. And there I was on my back, and, and I'm waiting to go into surgery, and they're putting tubes in my arms and everything. And, and I hear next to me this, what sounded like a girl going, <laughs> and I said, hello. <laughs> so you witness everywhere. You witness everywhere. I said, uh, hello, and she goes, hello. I said, um, are you going into surgery? She goes, yeah. And I said, I don't know why. I said, what for? <laughs> we can't see each other. It turns out neither of us can see each other. She said, I'm getting my C67 fused. I said, me too. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, me too. And, and, and I said, are you scared? And she said, yes. And I said, can I pray with you? She said, please. And I said, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I prayed for this girl next to me who I couldn't see. She couldn't see me. I went in. They took a bone from my hip out, which is the most painful part of the surgery when you're done. They can also use a cadaver and put it in there. And when you're done with surgery, you can do the foxtrot. <laughs> And she got the foxtrot. And the day after surgery, I'm in my room, and uh, I'm just being honest with you here, and I didn't plan on sharing it with you, but sometimes after anesthesia, you can't go to the bathroom. I know you didn't think you were going to hear that from me today. I appreciate it if you leave it out of the paper of Dr. Scott Hahn, okay? <laughs> And I could not go, and I'm laying there, and I'm thinking, I gotta go, I gotta, I gotta go. So I'm, I'm standing up, and the gowns they give you are like really, really discreet, you know? <laughs> not. And I'm standing over there, and I'm going through every Hebrew prayer, Baruch Adonai Elohim, you know, clean pipes, everything, you know? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, I, and, and all of a sudden I hear this, hello! And I went, ah! And I turn, you know, I turn around, it's the girl. And, and, I, and she said, I, I'm, the, I'm the one that was next to you in, in surgery that you prayed for. I went, good. good. <laughs> she said, I just want to thank you. It meant so much to me. Thought, <laughs> Bye. God bless you. <laughs> but it meant so much to her when someone who was suffering prayed for her. Now, let me kind of wrap this up a little bit here uh, because I'm almost done with my introduction. That I. <laughs> Just kidding, because I know Father's like. <laughs> That's not what we talked about earlier. When you go through suffering, I want to encourage you tonight it has meaning, it has eternal meaning, redemptive cash if it is in union with Jesus. And in the process of joining yourself to Christ, you will come to know him in his mission. And you will come to love like he loves. And you will die to yourself 
and you will become more like him. And you will be able to say what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And I want to encourage you that if you are going through something right now, by an act of your will, join your suffering to Jesus. It has meaning. It has meaning. Join your suffering to Jesus by an act of the will. Give it to him and rejoice in the fact that he can use this in the salvation of souls, and you can become more like him. And if you are going through suffering, it's never an excuse to leave your vocation. If you're married, you still remain married. If you're a father, you remain a father. A mother, a mother. A single, a single, a single generous person, a priest, a deacon. You, you can't say, I'm suffering, I'm not gonna be a priest for three weeks now. I'm not going to be a mother for three weeks. In fact, I'll just tell you this little funny story. When I got home from the hospital, they had a little brace on my neck. It was a big brace. And they had it on my neck, and I am laying down. And I laid down that night, and uh, uh, life was more ideal thanks to uh, two little pills that I took. <laughs> and I was singing songs, you know. <laughs> this is the day. And I laid down to go to sleep, and I laid on my side, and I went to sleep. And I don't know what it is, but there's something about parents that know when their DNA is an inch from their face. <laughs> and I'm laying on my side, and it's about five in the morning, and all of a sudden I open my eyes, and it's my five-year-old Jackie. She never comes to my side of the bed. She always goes to Emily's side. But this is the night she chose my side. And I went, ah. <laughs> So what are you doing, Jackie? She goes, Dad. And she holds up a naked Barbie doll <laughs> and a, a dress. And she says, just dress her and you can go back to sleep. <laughs> See, this is what Percocet looks like, you know. <laughs> Those are some drugs. And I know this isn't happening. And I said, uh, I thought, and this is what I actually thought. I thought, <laughs> she thinks I'm her father. <laughs> I'm going to say, honey, honey, listen, just, just recap what happened the last couple days. They took part of my neck out. <laughs> they cut out my, my hip, and then they carved it to look like what the neck used to look like. And then they stuck it in there, and then they put a titanium, you know what titanium is, honey? They put a titanium plate over it, uh-huh. And you know, like the screws that are loose in your head? They put two of those, they put two of those right, right in my neck. I wanted to say that to her so bad, you know, and I looked at her and I said, oh, and I took the little naked Barbie doll and I took the dress and I went, there, she goes, thanks. <laughs> 20 seconds later, dad, what? It's on backward. <laughs> Put that dress on backward, offered it up. <laughs> so it was interesting that she thought I was her dad in the midst of that. <laughs> and I want to encourage you that whatever you're going through, you, you're not becoming less of yourself, you're becoming more of yourself when you embrace it and you offer that up in union with Jesus. So I, I want to really just encourage you this evening. You know, there's so many things that, that I, could, I, could, I could share with you uh, if we had the time, but I know that tonight is not meant to be a, a long, long talk. So I just wanted to share a few things from John Paul II, from Scripture, about redemptive suffering to let you in on, you know what, this, this is real stuff. 
and it really works and it is powerful and from now on you don't have to live 30% of your life if you're having less than an ideal day it might not be like my neck or it might not be like cancer or it might not be like a motorcycle accident or something like that but your less than ideal day can either be wasted or you can offer that up even as much as not getting into a class you wanted and you're thinking you can offer that up for other people every aspect of your life amen Amen. Amen. I do have another hour. <laughs> Kidding. Can I close in prayer? Yeah. <laughs> Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Jesus, we love you and we adore you and we thank you for making our lives new and that all things are new and you have redeemed all of us. And we give you, Lord, tonight, I pray with all my brothers and sisters, I pray for the things that they're going through, that they would be able to, to offer up their suffering in union with you by an act of their will, giving this to you and that you would take it and use it, Lord, for your glory and for the spread of your kingdom. Thank you that we can love as you love. Thank you that we are participants in your mission in all aspects. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for teaching us how to live. And we thank you that one day there will be no more suffering and that we will be with you forever and ever and ever. In your name we pray, amen. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you so much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.